0: Welcome back to All Rings Considered, episode 36 of our Lord of the Rings read-through. Uh, this is book four, chapter three, The Black Gate is Closed. Event-wise, this is not a particularly long chapter, actually. Frodo, Sam, and Gollum have made it to the Black Gate of Mordor, which is the sort of main regular entrance into Sauron's land, and it's guarded by a zillion monsters and orcs, and they realize, oh, we can't really go in that way. I Guess we don't have a choice, but Gollum insists, no, 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 there's another way. I can take you to it if we go down south to Minas Morgul, which used to be a Gondor city but has been captured by Mordor long, long ago. It's turned into like this horrible place, horrible place, excuse me. There's a long, winding staircase that goes up into the mountains, it goes to a secret tunnel that we can use to get in. Uh, that tunnel is called Kirith Ungul. Sam is kind of against it because he doesn't trust Gollum. But Frodo agrees, and that's where the chapter ends.
1: Right. Yeah, there really wasn't... This is a very short chapter. Yeah. Um, we had a couple of those it's, in in the beginning of book one. But um, did you notice
0: it's one of those chapters we've talked before about Tolkien's structure being you have a chapter where people are moving and you have chapters where people stop, and there's exposition mm-hmm. about like plans and what to do. And he gets this set up, and then he has this moving again. This is book four's first stop, and talk about the plan chapter. Right. Right. Oh, Yeah. They just all sit around and talk for the whole time, for the most part, about what to do.
1: Yeah. And event wise, there are a couple of things that they see. Um, they yes. see men coming into Mordor, armies of men mm-hmm. being brought into Mordor. And then they also see the ring wraiths uh, flying in the sky.
0: Yeah. Who have been sort of a regular presence by this point. Um, throughout book three and four actually right so always appearing in the sky never directly interacting with our protagonist whether that was in book three or four one thing i like about this chapter is there's um, a good sense of the the horror of mordor i think it's really unlike anything else in tolkien's legendarium to this point if you had been reading in publication order so if the hobbit fellowship of the ring now you're into two towers this is just it's terrifying it's creepy this the the dark lord's homeland and having to sneak into that or figure find a way to sneak into it it's i don't know it gives me a really cool distinct vibe that's not quite like anything else you know moria is horrible moria is horrible the barrow whites are horrible whatever but it's not quite the same there's something really intense about this stuff Tolkien does a great job with that
1: yeah and especially in moria i i feel like there's this this very different sense of emptiness I mean, actually, I think that the dark is described as being kind of thick, but I I just personally, from reading it, I get this sense of the unknown and being afraid for the unknown is a very different feeling from like a very, almost disgusting horror in front of
0: you. Yeah. But it's so terrifying. He describes the beginning here. He's talking about all the garrisons along the back gate, excuse me, along the black gate and the various towers, watchtowers, including the towers of the teeth. Uh, which is a great name. Um, he talks about how there are dark window holes staring north and east and west, and each window was full of sleepless eyes. That's, that's terrifying. Um, you have, like, beneath the hills on either side, the rock was bored into a hundred caves and maggot holes, and there a host of orcs lurked, ready at a signal to issue forth like black ants going to war. It's kind of terrifying. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think, actually, correct me if I'm wrong, did in Frodo's vision on Amon Hen, did he. Am I remembering correctly mm-hmm. that he saw great armies as small insects?
0: Didn't he see them coming out in that vision of the misty mountains though?
1: Yeah, but I just mean like the idea of yeah. these orcs oh. being these massive uh uh of ants or insects.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely like repeated image there.
1: Um something that struck me, uh it was just a small piece, but um the trumpet um that yeah. marked the uh transition from the uh, night guard to to day guard um mm-hmm. i thought that was actually very like strangely ominous like it it really kind of felt like this like this odd clockwork about mordor um yeah. that and even the description of the the guards when they're having the change of guard it wasn't that the the guard that was being relieved were, oh, free to go to their, <laughs> you know, uh, their free time. They were being summoned to their dungeons. Actually, I think the, uh, the yeah, it's the, the night guards were summoned into their dungeons and deep halls. And the day guards, evil-eyed and fell, were marching to their posts. And that sense of, it's not even, it's this, it's awful for them too. Yeah. Right? That it's just, it's not that like, oh, we're the bad guys and we're working together to do bad things. Haha. Like, it's this, it's awful in all of its machinery, even for the participants.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that word machinery, though, here, too. Like you said, there's a kind of clockwork to it. Yeah. Everything about it is automated and clockwork-like, which is interesting that we get that vibe. And it speaks to Tolkien's strength as an author, because, of course, the heroes use horns and stuff to call people, but... We don't at all get the same vibe, but here we're thinking, oh, my gosh, this is clockwork-like, machine-like, etc. Tolkien does a great job of getting that into our heads without explicitly saying it. Yeah. Yeah. I I love the sense of just helplessness that I think comes with this horror and terror, right? It's actually one of my favorite things you can do in media is when you can make somebody – when you can make your protagonist or somebody feel very helpless, that you're in enemy territory, and it's not that you're there on a fair fight. If you're caught, you're 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 done, uh, and they do that. He does that really well. Not just here; we're going to see it, of course, so many other times throughout Frodo and Sam's journey. But this is, I think, is the first time we are seeing it. It's just a really powerful uh, feeling.
1: It's actually it's quite a feat for an author to do that. I think that this like getting someone to be uh, afraid for a character's uh, fate is is not easy because you have this sort of like meta world information that like oh you're reading a book and uh, clearly mm. like you know there's more chapters to go and like if you already know the story of the Lord of the Rings which is you know kind of like common knowledge at this point um mm-hmm. to actually like feel this sort of helplessness is kind of like it's is a challenge right because you you already know what's gonna happen but you have to be able to uh like fall into that world uh yeah and yeah testament to the to the writing there's something like if we're for on the thread of interesting writing, Tolkien's strengths. There was something. Uh, it's kind of happened like throughout the book. Like Tolkien just does this in his writing, but I want to mention it here. What Tolkien does really well is something that other authors do as well. But what he like is very very good at is weaving of different perspectives in a single sentence. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the description of of something, d- going from like an omniscient narrator uh, to Weaving into like, oh, how it would be described from a character's point of view who's in the story. Uh, there's an example here. Frodo was remembering, uh, trying to remember if Gandalf had given him any guidance. He was thinking of Gandalf. And he's, uh, the quote is, before this choice, he could recall no counsel. Indeed, Gandalf's guidance had been taken from him too soon, too soon, while the Dark Land was still very far away. And it's just, it's little, right? Like it's this too mm-hmm. soon, too soon. Which is not—it's uh, not just the omniscient, you know, narrator saying, "Oh, it's like too soon," you know, moving on. It's you dip into Frodo a little bit, um, and then you come back up. Uh, and I think Tolkien just weaves this like, and it's—it's it's brilliant. He kind of does it from different, like not just from the characters, but I'm just like recalling from like The Hobbit. Like he would weave in descriptions of uh, or perspectives of the actual the reader. Like us, like um, making comparisons to uh, things in like our world, like um, the game of um, golf. I mean, that's like very explicit, right? right? But it's, you know, uh, he does this um, constantly. It's, it's really good.
0: Yeah, for those who don't we'll know, in the Hobbit, Tolkien comments that golf is invented by a uh, Hobbit now. lopping off a orc's head into a, a hole or something. Yeah, it's actually been a while since I read that. Um, yet, you know, speaking of something you said earlier about us knowing the results of this, one detail I love about uh, this chapter is that Gollum doesn't tell them the name of the passage. Maybe he doesn't know what the name is, but the name of the passage that he needs to take them to is Carath Ungol. And all Tolkien comments on it is he says, sort of as the narrator kind of inters- intervenes here, and he says, if Aragorn had been there, he could have told them, no, <laughs> bad idea. <laughs> if Gandalf had been there, he could have told them, no, bad idea. But they weren't there, and Gollum didn't tell them the name of the place but the name itself is a spoiler because the name says what it is it's the cleft of the spider if you look up those words in elvish hmm. um it's right there the name so if you do i would I, w- I wonder if somebody ever did read this and was maybe trying to like follow on the language and just read through the first time and then look those words up and thought huh huh <laughs> <laughs> if you do like you would know you would know what's going to happen which is kind of cool
1: yeah um really kind of i only had like a couple more things about the chapter just because it was short one mm-hmm. thing that was mentioned is that the they're kind of re-entering the world there was a short period of time where actually kind of long period of time where uh frodo and sam were separated from the rest of the world really
0: that's true they, they were in like the wilderness. wilderness right yeah um and, and here they're, and here mordor is yeah i mean it's not good civilization but it is civilization of some kind yeah
1: i didn't have any real point to make about that um and the last thing I had was that uh I, we talked a little bit about laughter in in a previous episode, and uh mm-hmm. the positivity that uh Tolkien's attitude towards laughter takes in his writing um that was one of those sentences I was not sure how to finish <laughs> um but uh but at the end of this chapter uh they're talking about uh they see there's this uh, army that is marching towards Mordor, and um Sam here's the army and believes for a second that uh there might be oliphants. Um and uh Sam tells a poem about oliphants to uh to Gollum to you know uh tell them what they are. And Frodo laughs. And the quote is Frodo mm-hmm. stood up. He laughed in the midst of all his cares when Sam trotted out the old fireside rhyme of Oliphant, and the laugh had released him from hesitation. And I think it's it's nice. It's just a little bit of laughter kind of just uh separating Frodo from being paralyzed. Laughter's evolutionarily. Um uh some people have theorized that laughter is a uh way to let everyone know that things are okay. So if you fall yeah. and you don't hurt yourself, um, but you know, it's a, a signal to say, Hey, like that was something that could have hurt you, but hey, there's a signal, Every, everything's okay. Um, but right. here I think it's it's nice just to have this um, like positivity be recognized like even in the, this most horrible place.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, one thing, final thing I wanted to say about the chapter is tough to say. And I don't know if I'm going to say it the right way. But the reality is this chapter, I think, brings to us one of the more problematic aspects of the book. And it's a very small part of the book but it does reflect who wrote it. It reflects when he wrote it. And that is the inescapable fact that these evil men that are marching to Mordor have dark skin and black hair and are clearly meant to have borrowed sort of imagery of either Northern Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa or something like this. And I, I don't think that's, Defensible. I'm not, I'm not here to defend it. Uh, I'm pointing it out. I think it is a small part of the book. It, it's not an overarching, I mean, it doesn't have a bearing, I guess, on the overarching plot necessarily, but it is there. It is problematic. I would certainly hope that any book like this written now would not have that kind of imagery. We know why it's here, um, because we know that Tolkien, his background, he's an upper middle class white person from England from first half of the 20th century. He would not really have thought anything of that imagery being used in like negative negative ways. So he just could do that, did do it. I don't mean to suggest like he couldn't have known better, but that's just the reality. These things used to be much, much more pervasive and common. Part of it, part of it's his own circumstances and stuff. And that just is what it is. Like, I, I don't really have anything more to say on that matter. But part of it is reflecting how he's trying to draw out and use medieval worldviews here. And so Rohan kind of seems to represent these sort of medieval northern Europe societies in a lot of ways. And Gondor seems to represent the medieval Mediterranean world in a lot of ways, the Byzantine Empire and stuff. And it uses their imagery. Like this is what they would have kind of thought and perceived um, as like the enemies, be people from Carthage, Middle East or North Africa, or something like this and and there is a trend in medieval literature of people seeing like dark skin as like a bad thing like it's associated often with like islam and who to them were like, who to the people of the ancient sorry not the ancient but the medieval christian mediterranean were um were pagans right so they were therefore bad and, it is striking Tolkien does keep it consistent within that like view that medieval kind of worldview right he doesn't like talk about these men being different races like, the medieval world would not have had a concept of race, like racial theory or anything like this. And so Tolkien keeps it within that worldview, which is, again, problematic. I'm not defending it. I'm just pointing out that it's here, and it's a small part, but yeah. You
1: know. Yeah, I like. I think we don't need to... like. We could deal with this and talk about this for a very long time. Um, I will say that... But I think there's a trope here of an, an army coming from outside of your known world from your map that every culture all the way around the world like there this has happened everywhere like there's off the sides of your map but beyond your unknown and there's a rival group of people who have an army and are a threat
0: yeah yeah and, and I think I th- like especially... I think it could be both those things at the yeah. same time like I, I don't think there's one explanation for this there there never is there's always multiple factors playing into it,
1: yeah, I certainly agree with that i I think i I certainly agree with that there doesn't have to be a switch good, bad, and worth looking into, like you're discussing the uh way in which uh medieval writers would often portray um not non christian nations right right
0: yeah I mean the medieval authors would do things like I mean there are medieval narratives of of Muslims converting to Christianity and their skin as a result, lightning. Like they, that's the kind of connection they would make, um, which is, That's pretty yeah.
1: terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> on, that note, <laughs> uh, on that
0: note. So yeah, a bit of a downer note. That's all right. Yeah. No, no, no. it's, it, hey, it's worth, it's worth mentioning. It I, I don't think there's much more for all the, I don't think there's much more to say about it. It, it only comes up very briefly in a couple of these chapters. So.
1: Well, uh, Charlie, did you have a favorite line from the black, gate is closed
0: yeah i i really like the line that where frodo talks about um frodo talks about and he says or he thinks to himself here he was a little halfling from the shire a simple hobbit of the quiet countryside expected to find a way where the great ones could not go or dared not go and i just i love that that's that's lord of the rings right there right in so many ways the classic image right. of the great it's the great heroes, the ones who are, have the bloodline or the magic powers, aren't actually the heroes. The, these people are the real heroes. Like, the common people are true heroes. So it's nice to get a reminder of that. Charlie,
1: I, I'm going to go tit for tet with you here. I've got another classic mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings-themed line. Um, nice. Frodo speaking. Smeagol, he said, I will trust you once more. Indeed, it seems that I must do so, and that it is my fate to receive help from you, where I at least look for it. And your fate to help me, whom you long pursued with evil purpose.
0: It's a good one. Heck of a book. Heck of a book. Um, good chapter title here too. I like this <laughs> yeah. chapter title a lot, by the way. This is a strong one. Eight out of ten, I think. I'd give it. Black gate is closed. That's cool. Cool ominous imagery and stuff. Love it. Yeah. So to that end, uh, we are done with this chapter. Then let's talk about we got we got a lot of reader submitted questions and thoughts and we got comments. Got some fan stuff.
1: mail and some hate mail.
0: Yes. We got a lot. Which ones do we want to take? Do we want to do just one this episode? We can do another one later.
1: Uh, I was thinking we could just pick some. Um, I've got one that I have an answer to. So here's a question from a concerned reader. The Hobbits mention that the trees in the forest near the Shire were once said to move by themselves. Is this where the Entwives went that Tree Treebeard longs for? Thank you for the question, reader, or listener. Uh No.
0: There it is. <laughs> um
1: so sorry uh yes uh I actually uh no I I don't think so. Um there are a couple of reasons for this. One is that actually I think Tolkien uh conceived well uh, you go. so this this there's a couple of dubious like things here. One Tolkien conceived at the ends after I think the part was written that um about the trees in the uh hop, uh, uh in the shire moving. But one thing is that uh ju- Ints don't aren't exactly trees, right? And yeah. I think they they don't really they don't look so much like trees. More that they look more like giants. Um, yeah. And I think in the case where they, they were moving and not staying still, if the intwives were on a uh, like a a march, uh, they would not have looked or appeared to be trees. But I do think actually I really like this question uh, because uh it kinda is this expression of a desire for them to be found. Um yeah. which that longing I think is tragic. Um because I think the it's just the case that the at least from my reading, the Ents and the wives are never reunited, uh and it's very sad. But I think the sadness is on purpose. Um yes. and it's okay. It's like it's something to it's deal with It's telling
0: if you follow any kind of Tolkien message board or subreddit or something online yeah, you know, probably once a month, someone posts asking about the Ents' It's a very powerful, resonant thing that a lot of people have questions about and think about. So you're absolutely right there. I I also agree that don't really look like trees. I think the I think this is where like some Peter Jackson movie imagery has kind of seeped into our consciousness sometimes and doesn't actually line up with the text. Um, the Huorns though are actually moving trees, and I really think all what Tolkien's going for there is that the true, pure, ancient forests would have been alive in a way, like the Huorns are kind of alive, and they're coming from Fangorn, which is old and ancient and stuff, right? And there's this pocket of ancientness with the old forest near the Shire, and he's just trying to give, like, agency to the ancient nature that's out there, and that has been sort of gradually removed over the uh, millennia. So, yeah, it would probably not be that wise, but what's, no- what's another question we can take?
1: Um, So here's another one. It's a good one. Um, uh, What work of literature, film, music, etc. do you think people would be most surprised to learn was influenced by Tolkien? Um, yeah, actually, like this question Yeah, it's, it's a good question. There's there's a song by Styx who did... Styx is the band oh. who did Mr. Roboto um, called The Message. And I can read the chorus here. All hail to the Lord of the Ring, to the magic and mystery they bring, to the lands of ancient glory. And I know you're thinking um, uh, what book this is uh, about. And no, it's not about the Hobbit. It is in fact uh about the Lord of the Rings, oh, yeah,
0: I thought it was about Lord of the Flies, and you'd be wrong. I learned something new today i My answer to this question that my answer is this question is interesting i mean I think most literature or film or music, et cetera that's influenced by Tolkien is obviously influenced by Tolkien, right like it would not be surprising to learn that you know, any high fantasy, yeah, Tolkien oh, these Led Zeppelin songs have Tolkien references. Yeah, it's really explicit. Like, (laughs) It's not surprising. Um, So when I thought about what's surprising, I could only kind of come up with two things. So there's a Stephen King book called The Stand, which is set in this post-apocalyptic United States um, that is influenced by Lord of the Rings. And apparently it was born out of Stephen King's desire to write a Lord of the Rings-style narrative and set it in the modern United States. So that might be surprising. That's kind of curious to me to think of Stephen King uh, yeah that is taking surprising. some influence from this that's surprising because it's not high fantasy right it's a different genre of things so that's really cool but th- the question actually just asks influenced by tolkien not by the lord of the rings and tolkien's influence be, this might be surprising i guess maybe to some people who don't know what he did but he had a, such a tremendous influence on beowulf yes scholarship and yep. writing and that's worth thinking about and i think not many people might people might not make that connection if you have to read Beowulf in high school or something you probably don't make the connection that Tolkien kind of is responsible for having that there and I I did a lot of so I've had to do a lot of work on my uh graduate degrees on Beowulf so I really love Beowulf and I've read it a lot of times and, and had to learn old English and all these things and so Tolkien scholarship I had to be pretty familiar with it's for the most part outdated it's also for the most part things like I suspect if he hadn't said this stuff, somebody eventually would have pretty soon. Um, he just happened to be the first. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. um, I don't think it's born as some original genius that only Tolkien had. I think we were we were bound for this, but essentially what Tolkien jump started and argued for was uh, to read Beowulf and just use basic literary literary criticism on it. People just hadn't really done that; they just kept treating it as more of a anthropological document or historical document or something. And nobody really thought to just think of it as literature for a little bit. And that really opened the floodgates. And again, I I think somebody would have come up with that if he hadn't. But But, it's a pretty big deal.
1: But in your your expert opinion, do you think Beowulf would have been this uh, pillar of sort of our in our Mm -hmm. educational system uh, that it is today without Tolkien?
0: I do, actually. Yeah, I do. Because that's not take away from Tolkien's influence here. But again, I would go back to that to me is it was a point that would have been applied no matter what, because that's that's the way literature scholarship works. It's always looking for new things to write about because people need to publish something and we would have bound to hit on that eventually. But also even before Tolkien, um, a lot of people were trying to promote Beowulf as um, an epic for England to go along with the Odyssey and the Aeneid Mm. and the Iliad, excuse me, as well. So but with that kind of promotion people wanting that to happen it, it would have had to happen eventually i am not by the way saying beowulf is the equivalent of those things people wanted it to be right people wanted that kind of work for england and thought they had it so i think that would have led to the promotion i don't necessarily think it is that kind of work it's its own entity but yeah
1: all right uh thank you readers for your questions by the way thank you listeners you
0: keep calling them readers but you know none of them are reading this podcast <laughs> well, all <right. laughs> well all
1: right uh thank you listeners for your questions feel free to send us some more
0: yeah please again email addresses is a-r-c-l-o-t-r at gmail.com okay so next week uh book four chapter four of herbs and stewed rabbit join us then